Welcome to episode 72 of the Walking Closer podcast, Jesus the Man, part two. <laughs> we started part one last week asking the question, who was Jesus? And this is all coming from the place of, I was thinking we, we, we tend to focus so much on the divinity of Jesus that we might forget, maybe lose the connection with the fact that he was actually human. And so who was he? Flesh and blood, Jesus as a human. And uh, while we may not know a whole, whole lot about certain things, I think Scripture does give us some clues and points towards some things that maybe we sometimes overlook. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to bring some of that out. And to do this, we first started talking about his parents, Mary and Joseph. And um, now I want to talk a little bit more about his childhood. Um, We did a little bit last week. Um, And I want to talk, take a look at his relationship with his mother. And, uh, yeah, there's nothing like a relationship between a child and their mother. And so uh, starting here with Jesus' childhood, as I mentioned last week, he was taught, he learned, he grew like other kids. Um, at some point, he learned a trade from Joseph, right? He, his training began probably around 12 or 13, and he was born into this. And, you know, it was ex- he was be expected to take up the trade of his father. And, uh, again, you know, <laughs> I get it. Jesus is the son of God. Uh, but Joseph, for all his purposes, was his earthly father, right? And so Jesus would fall into the same expectations, take up the trade of your father. Uh, he that he was born into this. This is what he was going to do. And he uh, became, you know, a, a carpenter, someone who was able to work with their hands. Remember the word carpenter there? That's oftentimes translated carpenter, at least. It just means somebody who's good with their hands could include a blacksmith. We don't know what you, he could have built boats, buildings, who knows. Um, so anyways, he learned this trade from his from Joseph. Um, but not only that, what's so unique about this is something that I never really considered before. Jesus knew how to read. Now, <laughs> I mean, it seemed so fascinating to us because, yeah, I mean, everybody knows how to read, right? I mean, very few people don't know how to read is maybe how we think. Um, but yeah, no, that, not, so, not so much in Jesus' day. You know, it's not easy to estimate their literacy rates among the Jews in Jesus' day, but some well-researched estimates come in around 1.5%, give or take a few points, but definitely less than 3%. And we know Jesus knew how to read because he read in the synagogues, and uh, he taught there a lot. Going to synagogues was a part of who he was. It seems that uh, what's interesting about all of this that most towns only had one synagogue, and it served as the place where people would go to hear and to learn Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus played a role in reading so people could hear it. Uh, and there's some evidence that at least in some places it, there may have only been one person who did all the reading. And well, it's probably because the only person who could read. And so Jesus potentially was that person in Nazareth. And there could have been multiple people, but considering the fact that the estimates are pretty low as far as literacy rates concerned, and if that is true, then Jesus would have been unique in being among the few people who actually could read the scriptures. And so in cultures that are based on oral traditions, this isn't a problem, right? Learning how to read was not seen as a priority or a necessity. And so I think Jesus was uh, being able to read was unique, um, sets him apart. And we also know that by the age of 12, that he knew scriptures well enough to sit among some religious leaders and, you know, put them in awe. And uh, he probably learned much of this with all the time he spent in the synagogue growing up. 
And going to the synagogue was uh, was a custom that he continued into adulthood. So Jesus, as a child, I think for all intents and purposes, grew up like most kids during his time. A few things that set him apart. He definitely was astute. I mean, at age 12, being able to hang with us, you know, and even put the some of the teachers of his day in awe. And you got to understand, like, sitting there among these guys wasn't just an easy task. Jesus was actually able to to hang with them, right? He, he put them in, in awe of his understanding, his knowledge, the way that he was able to answer questions. And, and uh, we'll talk about this in a, in a moment, uh, the actual rhetorical style in which they would engage one another. Jesus is doing this as a 12-year-old boy. So that sets him apart, no doubt. Um, but with that being said, I want us to look at Jesus' relationship with his mother. Okay. Now, to do this, I think it's helpful to look at some events in Scripture, uh, specifically through Mary's perspective. Okay, so in Luke two forty-one through 50, fifty-two, imagine you're being told, okay, or you're looking at this through the lens of Mary from her perspective. All right. So it's time for the Passover, and Mary and Joseph were accustomed to going down to Jerusalem every year to the Passover. What's interesting about this is that going to Jerusalem to the temple was was how they would. This was what it looked like to appear before the Lord, right? You you go down to the temple, and this was to be done uh, at least three times a year. Um, the feast of what they called the unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, the feast of booths, and all the males were were supposed to go down and with just to, to sacrifice. Uh, various passages make reference to this. Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen is one. But when, men were expected to go down there, but women were not required. But during the second temple period, which is the time of Jesus, the commandment to, to do this was, uh, was interpreted or, or understood to mean that, look, this was something that's to be observed at some point, uh, whether it was once every few years or even once during your, just once during your life. Uh, it wasn't something that necessarily did every year all the time. And if you you made it just once a year, it was considered, you know, if, if you literally would go once a year, <laughs> it was considered a rather strict observance, should we say. They, uh, so it seems like Mary and Joseph were accustomed to doing this every year. We don't know if Jesus went necessarily all the time, but he did go when he was 12. So this is that moment. Jesus is 12. They go on the Passover. And the reason why he would have gone this time was because he is now at the age where he is considered, quote, unquote, the son of the law. And uh, kind of like reaching manhood. And so he has to go down to Passover now. And it's time for him to get serious about the stuff. So they going down or going up, should we say, to Jerusalem. And it's about 90 miles, three to four days travel. And the way that they would travel would be in these caravans where women would be in one group with the children and then the men in another group. So they get down to Jerusalem, and they're there for several days for the feast of the Passover. And the conclusion of all, it's time to leave, okay? And they begin this three- to four-day journey back to Nazareth, but they go about a day's journey. And then they realize Jesus is not with them, and he had actually stayed back in Jerusalem at the temple. But they didn't know this. And so from Mary's perspective, Jesus is lost. They can't find him. So imagine the emotional stress and the anxiety Right as she would take as 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 she she would experience as she retraced their steps eventually back to Jerusalem, and uh, you can imagine just just 
all of these mixed emotions and this this pain and this this uh, this fear and this panic and you know where's my boy where's where's my son uh, so after three days of searching they finally find him and he's in the temple and you know what he's doing he's sitting with the teachers he's among them listening to them and he's asking them questions and. He was also answering their questions, and they were, they, they're amazed at what he actually understood. And I'm told that it was common practice for some of the members of the Sanhedrin to gather together during the week after the Passover in a certain area and, uh, of, this, of the temple you know, courtyards and teach and engage others. And it seems like this is at least where Jesus is. So just imagine Jesus... All the rabbis, Jesus is among all these rabbis gathering together and debating amongst each other, asking questions and answering questions. In fact, there was a certain style or flow with these discussions where one would answer a question by a more probing question and that there's a sort of rhetorical nature to it all. And in fact, you have an example of this when Jesus responds to his parents, which we'll get to here in a moment. So let's take a look at how Luke describes this moment. So uh, Luke 2.46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed. Uh, there's a, a Greek word here that deals with someone being driven out of their senses, being thrown into a maze and, and just just in awe. You can imagine the confusion of, wow, wow, what is going on here? What is this? Where does this kid come from? How does he know these things? And how can he respond this way? They're beside themselves with amazement, right? Uh, they, they, they continue uh, re- repeatedly. You know, they are, they're, they're put in astonishment. Uh, of his understanding and uh, his ability to put things together and make these connections. And they're astonished at his answers and how he was responding to them. And when his parents saw him, verse 48, they were, they themselves were astonished. Now, this is a different Greek word from verse 47 here. Uh, you know, this isn't the amazement thing here, okay? Uh, literally, the word is a strong word. It's like they are thunderstruck, right? To Literally, the word means to strike out, to drive out by a blow. They are just so taken back. And his, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The word distress, there's a same Greek word used to describe the torment of the rich man that he experienced in Hades. And so the picture that's painted here is of the distress and the pain and the agony and all the emotional trauma that they went through trying to find Jesus. And so imagine them walking up and where is Jesus, right? He's 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 sitting among these teachers, right? He's not suffering. Uh, he's not, he hasn't been kidnapped. Uh, he's not starving necessarily. Uh, he's not hurt. He's, he's okay. Everything is fine. And it almost seems like, imagine, 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 imagine through Mary's perspective, <laughs> finding him. And when you find him, everything's okay. And it doesn't seem like he is really concerned at all about the pain and the emotional trauma and the stress that he's caused right? Like everything's fine. And so 
Take a look at how Jesus responds to Mary. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. I got so caught up in these questions and the conversation that I lost track of time. You know, <laughs> say, I'm so sorry. It's never going to happen again. I'm so sorry for the emotional stress and trauma I've, I've caused you. Nope. Jesus responds to Mary in the same fashion that he was responding to the rabbis. In fact, the way that, you know, it's almost like Jesus just continues the flow of thought in the same process and style. And Mary might as well have been in part of the conversation with him all along. And so Jesus says, why are, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's things, some translations say. You see, like, she responds to Jesus by saying, why have you done this? And he responds with a counter question. Why did you seek me? Did you not know? And so imagine this. Mary and Joseph are frantically searching for him. They, they have been emotionally stressed, probably anxiety-ridden, and when they find him, everything's okay with him. But finding him in such a setting makes it seem like he was disinterested in what he might have caused or the pain that he might have brought upon them, right? And then the way he responds, he simply turns the question back on them. I don't know about you, but I'd have gotten in a lot of trouble. My mom would have said, don't talk back to me. Okay, uh, and all Luke tells us is that they did not understand what he meant. They didn't get it. And then he returns to Nazareth with them. And he was, Luke says, submissive to them. And but Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And she witnesses his growth, his growth in wisdom during this whole time. Now, man, and again, I know we can go through this and we can, you know, bring in all kind of theological uh, aspects to things and try to understand why he said what he said, what he meant by this. It's just simply look at this through Mary's perspective. They are looking for their child. <laughs> they are. They're probably brought to, you know, their emotional end and they find him and everything's okay. And they find him in a state where it's like, wait a minute, what is going on here? Why would you do this to us? And Jesus' response, well, they don't understand it. But yet Jesus returns with them. He's submissive to them. And uh, he continues to be brought up by his parents. Now, remember how Mary responds here. And then let's look at another situation that involves Mary and Jesus. And I I think, again, I think the reason why I want to bring these two stories together because I think it highlights the human uh, aspect of, of Jesus and the fact that specifically he was raised by Mary, a real person, flesh and blood, okay? Um, and it does give us a little bit of insight, I think, into Jesus' relationship with his mom. Again, I don't like to read too much into this stuff, but I do think that there's some interesting things to to point out here. Um, and I know that if my mom, if I had been Jesus, right, and I had today come back with a response like that, yeah, I'd have been in a whole lot of trouble, okay? Um, and it does seem like Jesus is not so concerned about the trauma and the anxiety that they've they've experienced. Um, and we have a hard time believing that. We have a hard time thinking that. And sure, you know, you could argue saying, well, you know, uh, while Jesus, this may have been just what Jesus said, it doesn't mean 
that he didn't have those feelings or, or thoughts, okay? However, um, Luke records these words, and I think Mary was one of the sources for Luke's letter here to Theophilus, because remember, Luke says, I researched all of this stuff, and who else to give him a better perspective from this than, than Mary herself? Um, that being said, and that's just that's just speculation here on my part, um, but again, just, just focus on Mary's response, okay? Here, and then now let's look at another situation that involves Mary and Jesus. And specifically, it'll be the wedding in Cana, where Jesus performs uh, his, the miracle where he turns water to wine. You find that in John chapter 2, verses, uh, the first, first 11 verses. So what's interesting about this is that Cana was about nine miles south of Nazareth. And this would have been where Mary lived, right? In Nazareth. And so John tells us that she is at a wedding. And the emphasis is on Mary first. Like he's like, look, there was a wedding and Mary was there, right? Uh, and then we're told in the next verse that Jesus and his disciples were also invited. So the impression is that they might have not initially been on the guest list. Uh, so think about it. Yeah, there was a wedding and Mary was there. Oh, you know, Jesus and his disciples were there as well. And uh, in fact, they could have been part of the reason why the wine eventually runs out. Right? You have this sudden influx of additional visitors, but maybe not. We don't know. But it does seem like the emphasis on the fact that Mary is there, and then secondly, Jesus and his disciples. Now, so the emphasis is on Mary, and again, let's look at, let's focus from the perspective of Mary here. Regardless of what happens and why it happens, um, the wine runs out, and Mary is aware of it. So she's probably aware of it because she was probably involved in preparing, you know, this feast, the the, the wedding preparations, and it's good to remember that these wedding feasts could last for several days, and if not carefully planned out, there could easily be a shortage of food or drink or whatever. And to run out of wine at an event like this would kind of place like this cloud over the whole event, right? It was it was like a matter of honor, and these again these these banquets could last for days, and wine was expected to just flow freely. And if wine started to run out, guests could possibly begin to leave. And so Mary is aware of this. And um, when she becomes aware of it, what's interesting is that she goes to Jesus and she tells him about it. Okay. Why? Why did she go to Jesus? What, what did she expect of him? Some people say, well, we don't know what her expectations were. Well, I think her expectations uh, are found in what she eventually tells the servants to do. So let's look at this. Mary's, Mary's expectations of Jesus comes from the fact that she is his mother. Okay? And as his mother, she has had a lot of experiences, right? From the conception, all the things that were said about who he was going to be by the angels, by the prophets, and, and her cousin Elizabeth and others. And the Bible always tells us that she kept these things in her heart. And then the event at the temple, right, that we just talked about, and how Jesus responded. how She kept all these things in her heart. And this is a mother who knows her child and has some expectations based on some things that she knows about him. And so Mary comes to him and he says, woman. Now, when we read that, right? <laughs> like when we read woman, uh, it doesn't carry the same connotation then as it does for us. Uh, it, you know, This would probably be seen as a term of disrespect, but this is not as harsh as it sounds. And it's not harsh at all. Uh, 
in fact, Jesus is on the cross and he says, woman, you know, here's your son. You know, John, here's your mother. Take care of her. It's actually an idiom that is equivalent to our English word for ma'am or madam. It's polite and it is formal. Um, so Jesus is not being disrespectful. He's being polite. He is, he is being formal with her. You know, he has all the respect in the world. He's honoring his mom, as it were. But he says, what does this have to do with me? In other words, why, why talk to me about this? Uh, and it sounds like there's some reluctance here on Jesus' part. So he's like, well, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. And so obviously there's something about who Jesus is and what he can do that his mom knows that he knows that she knows, right? He says, my hour has not yet come. Now that's interesting because every time this is said, it marks some sort of crisis. In fact, the idea of my hour has not yet come, it's a, it's a, it seems like it's a big part of the story that John is, is telling. Uh, he uses it over and over again, especially about Jesus' death. You know, when they try and seize him, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, the, he says, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified now. At the Passover, Jesus knowing his hour had come. So there's something about this hour coming thing that would manifest something about Jesus and who he was and what his role was and what he was here to do. So Jesus says, why talk to me about this? Because it's not time. My hour has not yet come. So, okay, what's going on here? These obviously all right, pertain to what we would call a theological point. I don't want to look at this theologically necessarily. I want to look at this from the perspective of Mary, right? Remember, there's a wedding in Cana, and Mary is there. And then, yeah, Jesus and his disciples are there as well. It's almost like an afterthought. Emphasis on Mary. But look at this from the perspective of Mary. She's a real person, the mother of this man. He is her son. And I wonder what she thought about his response when he said, my hour has not yet come. Okay? Now, there are a few ways... Maybe looking at this. Uh, one way could be maybe, okay, so she has this request and his response, okay, are directly connected. And his response might tell us more about her intentions. And so, in other words, uh, Jesus connects his, his manifestation as the Messiah, right, to uh, him, you know, him being glorified for all to see directly with what his mother is asking him to do. And so, hey, here's your opportunity, maybe, right? Hey, here's your chance. Show people who you are. Show people what you can do. She's asking him to fix the situation and maybe as an opportunity to manifest who he, who, who he is, right? And Jesus is not saying that I'm not going to fix this. He's just saying, listen, um, I'm not going to do it in the way that you want to do it. I don't want that to be the end. Okay, that's one way that you can look at this. And there are maybe a few other ways. But consider this. Okay, again, from the perspective of Mary, Mary says, hey, we're running out of wine. And he says, mom, what is what is this? What does this have to do with me? Like, why are you asking me this? This is this is not the time for that. And maybe Jesus was simply saying no. And then what does Mary do? She tells the servants, right, do what he says. And so if Jesus is saying no here, Mary ignores what he says. She doesn't argue the point with him. She just turns to the waiters and says, listen, 
or the servants, right? And says, uh, and by the way, this is the last recorded words that Mary spoke. She tells them to do whatever he tells you to do. And she does this believing he's going to listen to her and not disappoint her. And in doing so, she puts the pressure back on him, right? Jesus is pressured by his mother, and he does not disappoint her, right? We know at the end of the story, he does this. He does this very thing. And so regardless of how you look at this, okay, Jesus' mother is saying, hey, we're out of wine. And I think her expectations, you want to know what she expected of Jesus? Yeah. Look at what she tells the servants. Listen to what he's going to tell you to do. Irregardless of what Jesus said and how he responded, okay, um, she puts it back on him. And he's like, no. She's like, hey, do what he tells you to do. Jesus honors his mother. She knows that he's going to uh, not disappoint her. And so maybe that's what's going on here, right? But regardless of 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 what you, <laughs> the particulars, right, or what you want to make of this, what you see here is a relationship between a mother and her son. It's a relationship that has grown and it has blossomed. And regardless of what Mary did not understand when Jesus was 12 and he responded to the, her the way that he did in the temple, she obviously understood some things by the time the wedding in Cana took place. That is expressive as a demonstration of the relationship that Jesus had with his mother during that time. In fact, I think these stories really um, indicate or indicators of how even Mary grew, right, in her faith and understanding. She's keeping all this stuff in her heart, right? She's, and she's doing her best to make sense of this. And now, now it's, yeah, there are some things that she understands. There are some things she understands about her son. And then she goes to him and his response to her. And then what she says, yeah, is indicative of a mother and a, and, and a child relationship. You have here Mary and Jesus, their relationship to some degree on display. And when I think about that, I think about Hebrews 5.8, where it says, although he was a son, Speaking specifically to the Son of God, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And I know in the context it's easy to point towards the cross, but it's a passage that brings out the full humanity of Jesus. His childhood and his upbringing played a huge role in his learning obedience, as it were, and prepared him in so many ways, right, for the ultimate end that what Hebrews 5 is talking about. And his, his relationship with Mary would have played as much of a role in his life, right, as our own mothers. So, yeah, <laughs> you do have a little window into the childhood of Jesus to some degree uh, and to the relationship that he had with his mom. Yeah, he's, he's a son. <laughs> he had a mom, yeah, and they had a relationship, and looks like it was a good one. Looks like it was a good one. All right, that's all the time I'm going to take uh, for this episode, but uh, part three. Uh, what I want to do is I want to explore, look into a few things that might be indicators of uh, maybe what Jesus looked like. And um, 
Obviously, he was a Jew, and there are certain things we can gather from that. But, uh, man, I think there's some things in the text that might, maybe, it might be speculative. But I still think it would be fun to explore and imagine maybe what Jesus looked like. And lots of other stuff we want to talk about. Jesus' teaching style, uh, his interactions with women, and much, much more. And so, thanks for listening. I hope that you continue to come back. And as we explore who Jesus was as a as flesh and blood, as a as a human being, okay, in hopes that uh, yeah we'll experience a better connection uh, with Him as a person, really, really understanding how He understands what it's like to be us and the things that we go through. So uh, please join me next time as we continue to explore becoming like Jesus from the inside out.